love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. The Box of Oddities is now a CastBox original. CastBox is the fastest growing, highest rated podcast app on both iOS and Android, where you can find all your favorite podcasts. You can listen to The Box of Oddities wherever you access your podcasts. But we hope you give CastBox a try. The curator is greatly pleased with CastBox. We think it's the best. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. And here we go. Mm. First off, I want to start off by saying you are looking lovely today. Oh, thank you. Well, I I, I did exfoliate. I can tell you're glowing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Glowing. Yeah. I also got one of those, uh, what do they call them, those... those uh... Pore suckers? Well, I got one of those too, but I, I have one of those uh, teeth bleachers. I have that as well, but no, I was thinking of the um, ear drainers. I, I have that. So yeah, I got a lot of uh, a lot of personal care items. What's your point? No, no, I, I'm. Listen, I was just saying that you look nice. Ah. That's period. End of story. Okay. Well, I appreciate it. you. Look nice too. Oh, thank you. You're- well, I've been. Uh, I I just got out of work, and so I'm feeling a little schlubby because I've. Now just changed into jams, and this is where I will stay. Mm-hmm. My second day at work, and we're still in that kind of getting to know you uh, phase, yeah. which is always uh, really uncomfortable for me because the more that people get to know me, the weirder that they, th- they think I am. And I think it kind of goes in like in phases. It's like, whoa, she's a weirdo. And yeah. then I kind of yeah. level off, mm-hmm. and they're like, okay, that's cool. And then you get to know me even more, and it's like, whoa. Yeah, yeah. she's a weirdo. <laughs> But you're the most delightful kind of weirdo. The icebreaker today brought up the fact that uh, I once was made to pee outside uh, because my mom wouldn't let me into the bathroom because there were ducks in there. That was a fun fun (laughs) I remember that story. Your mom was rehabbing ducks. Yeah. And she put them in the tub Mm -hmm. in the bathroom and uh, wouldn't let you go in to pee because there were ducks in your bathroom. You had to go pee in the yard. Yeah. Um, So I'm telling this story at my new job, and one of my new managers is like, so wait, why were there ducks? And I said, oh, well, we had a wildlife rehabilitation center. And he was like, what does that mean? And I was like, so we had like bears 
bear and deer and raccoon and stuff. Um, and they were in the barn, but the ducks were too small. They were just little little nuggets, so they couldn't go out in the barn. And he was like, so there were ducks in your bathroom, so your mom made you go out with the bear? <laughs> yeah, and, and, and it was too cold for the ducks, but sorry for you to pee in the to yard. pee in the yeah, yard. Yeah, pee quick, though, because that bear, he's hungry. <laughs> I was like, ducks, cat's basic needs, mm, Ducks. Yeah, so that was fun. Curator at theboxofoddities.com. Oh, oh, I wanted to mention this. We got a review on iTunes. Very nice uh, lady. She gave us four stars she wanted to give us five Uh, she said she really enjoys the podcast but uh, she's a librarian and it it cringes sometimes some of the things that uh, we pass off as fact she says look it up for yourself but really enjoy the podcast other you know well that was kind it was yeah and 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 that's a legitimate thing we i wanted to address that just because we do our best to cite our sources and to present things that we believe to be true but we're an entertainment podcast not a news podcast and you know sometimes we're gonna mess up Yeah. yeah and um as i've pointed out before um very lazy Yes. I'm very lazy. Yeah. And, you know, if we are presenting something as fact, it's because it's present been presented to us as right. as a fact. And we check a number of different sources and do the best we can. But, you know, we're we're just a couple of weirdos in Maine. Oh, yeah. We're no. not NBC. <laughs> we don't have all the information. I mean, we're not InfoWars. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> oh. Yeah, yeah. Oh. And with that, I'm going to launch into my topic today. yes, please. On December 20th, 1980, in Minnesota, temperatures dropped to minus 22 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. That's uh, minus 30 Celsius. The very next morning, a guy named Wally Nelson, not Willie Nelson, but Wally Nelson, he left his house at 7 o'clock in the morning, and he saw a strange object lying in his driveway. He went over to investigate, and when he rolled it over to his horror, he recognized the white, frozen face of his friend Jean Hilliard, blankly staring right through him with eyes. Her eyeballs were frozen solid. Her whole body was frozen solid. He described it as an ice-covered log. Oh, my goodness. Jean was her name? Jean Hilliard was her name. Why was Jean in his driveway? Well, here's what happened. 19-year-old... Jean Hilliard was driving home from a friend's house. Baby. Yeah, she was driving home from a friend's house. And again, this was December 20th, 1980. Uh, Record breaking cold temperatures and winds. What kind of car did she have? I'm not sure. It was 1980. I like to think it was a Ford Tempo. Did they have Ford Tempos back then? I don't know. So she'd been out having a good time and uh, she was driving home from a friend's house when her car skidded on an icy road and careened into a ditch. It was a very remote gravel road, but she did know somebody who lived nearby. And so she got out of the car. She was afraid if she stayed there, she would would freeze to death. Right. So she got out of the car and she thought, uh, well, my friend lives over the hill. Wally? Wally, yes. It was Wally. And in fact, earlier that evening, she and her boyfriend had been out drinking with Wally and a girl. And so she kind of knew that he lived, you know, close by. Right. So she gets out and she starts walking 
and it is blisteringly cold mm. and she's walking and walking and she gets up over the hill where she thinks his house is. His house isn't there. She's miscalculated. So she keeps walking. It's much further than she thought it was. Her legs were, were getting colder and colder. She was walking against the wind. Mm. She was getting more and more tired. The last thing she remembered was reaching the foot of Wally's driveway. She had trudged about two miles in this just bone-chilling temperature. It was one o'clock in the morning when she reached the driveway, and then she collapsed. Frozen Jean isn't dead? Frozen Jean did survive. <gasps> she said, this is according to NPR News. I had uh, gone into town and met some friends. This was uh, a fairly recent interview. It was like uh, earlier this year. Um, I headed home about midnight. She took a shortcut on an icy gravel road just south of Langby, which was the town that, uh, that she lived in. Oh, here, here you go. Her dad's Ford LTD had rear-wheel drive and no anti-lock brakes. Yeah, the tempo wasn't made until 84. Those LTDs were pretty good size. It slid into a ditch. She said, I, I knew Wally lived down the road, so I started walking. It was below 20. It was, it was 20 below that night, and I was wearing only cowboy boots. I get over one hill thinking this is where his house is, and it wasn't. I was more frustrated than scared. Two miles later, she finally saw Wally's house through the trees. Then she said as she got to the driveway, everything went black. For six hours in minus 22 degree Fahrenheit temperatures and blowing wind. Who knows what the wind chill was? Six horrible hours. She laid crumple and unconscious in the snow as uh, the temperatures slowly turned her into a human icicle. Seven in the morning, Wally comes out. By the way, he's a rancher and a part-time butcher, just so you know. Part-time butcher. He walked out the front door and he found Jean's frozen body. According to that NPR News article, he said, I was uh, so damn surprised when I saw this little hunk out in my yard. I grabbed her by the collar and I skidded her up onto the porch. I thought she was dead. She was froze stiffer than a board. But I did see a few bubbles coming out of the corner of her her nose. Now, Nelson knew her pretty well. Uh, She was, in fact, dating his best friend, Paul. And that night they had been out together, drinking and dancing at uh, the hottest spot within driving distance, which was the Faustin American Legion Hall. It was a place to go at that time, he said. Now, Nelson had picked up a lady that night at the American Legion Hall and brought her home. Nice. And then in the morning, he had to ask her to help him load Hilliard's frozen body into his truck. Wally, this is uh, is not what I signed up for. I had a real good time and all, but uh, I'll see you at the Legion next week. That would have been my response (laughs) if I had gone home with Wally. (laughs) So they try to get her frozen body into the cab of his truck but she was too stiff to fit in the cab they couldn't fit her in the cab and so they had to put it in put put her in the in the lady's car in the woman's car but again her body was frozen stiff and they couldn't bend any of the joints and everything so they had to put her in diagonally like we do two by fours when we're at home depot oh my goodness part of her probably sticking out the window right they had to put a little flag on her flag on her (laughs) (laughs) That's not nice. Okay. 
I'm sorry, Gene. I'm so proud of you right now. But the flag joke was just, it was too easy. Wally the Butcher described it as, quote, a very awkward end to the evening. Sure. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I mean, she helped. So that means that everything went nice the night before. That's true. Way to go, Wally. Wally said, I thought she was dead. Her face was ghost-like. So they load her into his friend's car diagonally. And uh, there was absolutely no sign of life at that point. And they drove her to uh, Faustin Municipal Hospital. They got there about 8 a.m. And doctors obviously were afraid if she wasn't dead already, that she was going to die. Right. Dorothy Killian, who was on the nursing staff at the time, was stunned. She said, quote, and this is according to Unsolved Mysteries website. She was so cold, it was like reaching into a freezer, like picking up a frozen stick of wood. Her face was absolutely white, just this ashen death look. We did hook her up to the monitor, and we got her heart rhythm. It was like one beat. It was just like one, and then nothing, and then two. We knew that uh, we had something, but that's a death rhythm. Then a Dr. Ryan Kelly was called in. He said, quote, She was severely frostbitten. None of her limbs would bend or move, and really things looked very grim. When a person gets frostbite, what we're basically talking about is freezing of the limbs. That actually means ice crystals have formed in the cells, and in so doing, they destroy many of the cells in the body after the hands and feet maybe start the initial stages of frostbite, and then the core temperature of the body will drop. The heart, the lungs, the internal organs of the abdomen, the brain... And they all, when they all start to cool, it becomes more and more difficult for them to perform their functions, and finally they stop. At that point, the patient would more than likely die. According to George Sather, he said, We could not get a temperature because we couldn't find a place to put the thermometer in. I couldn't open her mouth. I couldn't raise her arm. She was frozen solid. Again, stiff as a log. None of her joints were moving, Dr. Sather said. Her eyes were frozen solid. Her eyelids were, were open. They did not respond to light. Her skin was too hard to pierce with a needle. What? And even later, when they could get a pulse, she was only getting like uh, eight heartbeats a minute. She was frozen stiff, he said, like a piece of meat from a deep freezer. Oh. Those who saw her thought, geez, you know, it's, it's going to take a miracle for well, her to, yeah. uh, to recover. Her mother was called in. She said, uh, I held her hand. We kept calling her name. We kept praying for a response. And then about one o'clock in the afternoon, after they had put some uh, heating pads and, and heat packs around her, she, she started to make some noise and she went into convulsions. Sure. And then she just regained consciousness. She asked for a glass of water. She just kind of woke up and said, can I have a glass of water? Jean said, I woke up in the hospital about noon. Things were kind of hazy, and people were asking me questions as to who I am and things like that, and I, I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't figure out why they were talking to me that way or why they were treating me this way. Of course I knew these people. Of course I knew who I was. I mean, what's the big deal? But it wasn't until later that night that her hands and arms began to thaw. Oh, I bet that was very uncomfortable. I know. Those of us who live in a cold climate, when you're out in the cold, even just for a short period of time and you come in and you uh, warm your, your hands up, it just, it hurts so bad. It feels bad. like they're on fire. It does. Dr. Sather said, I've seen a lot of people frozen like this, but I've never seen a case where major amputation wasn't required. And I had leveled with Jean and her parents and told them that that probably would happen. She would lose both of her legs. She ended up spending six days in intensive care 
before she was moved to a regular hospital room. She stayed in the hospital for 49 days. Wow. But then when she left the hospital, she left without losing even a fingernail. What? Totally recovered. No side effects. What about her eyeballs? They thawed out and she could see fine. That doesn't make any sense. I know. And there is a picture that you wouldn't believe. Of her frozen eyeballs? Of her frozen body. According to uh, an article in the Spartanburg Herald, Dr. Richard Iseki, it's not unusual for a freezing person to make a full recovery. There's a term we have that says no one is dead until he's warm and dead. Well, that's just creepy. There are numerous case reports in medical literature of people who have survived with interior body temperatures as low as 68 or 69 degrees. Uh, The body reacts to extreme cold much like a hibernating animal. Internal activity is slowed, which dramatically reduces the cell's uh, demand for oxygen from blood. Now, she'd been drinking that night, and they think that maybe because it was alcohol in her system... It worked like antifreeze? It worked like an antifreeze. That's amazing. I think we've all learned our lesson here, kids. Drinking is good for you. <laughs> um, University of Minnesota professor of emer- <laughs> University of Minnesota professor of emergency medicine David Plummer says this kind of thing actually happens pretty frequently, not maybe as dramatically as this, but uh, he said we have had patients that you can knock on like wood; they feel rock solid, frozen, but that in no way dissuades us from a resuscitation attempt. He said, um, we do have a pretty good track record of success with this in emergency medicine. That's amazing. It really is. There was one time I was walking back to the parking lot down by the mill, um, down by the river uh, from Knox Hall at the University of Maine campus. And it was really cold. And I started to get real tired. And I started to think to myself, this is what happens. This is what happens. Suddenly, sleep seems like a really good idea. And even though like my brain in the back was going, no, it's not. (laughs) No. That's not a reasonable choice. I was like, the snowbank doesn't look too bad. It looks comfy. So cozy. (gasps) So soft. That is actually what... uh... You hear mountaineers say, people that climb like Everest or K2 or, you know, some of these great heights, they say that uh, that's one of the things is you just start getting sleepy mm-hmm. and you just, I'm just going to sit down for a few minutes and then, pfft, you know, yeah. you're, you're, you're asleep and you're, and, and you freeze. Right. And that's it. Luckily, I had campus police pull up and go, what's up there, lady? Mm, that's a good thing. Why are you laying on a snowbank? <laughs> it's cozy. It's a cozy snowbank. Leave me alone. You know, the frozen, this is like a completely different topic, but the frozen bodies on the Alps, Mm -hmm. a lot of them are still there and have been for decades in many cases. And they, people use them as markers. Oh, Everest, I heard that that's the, yeah. There's one, they uh, affectionately refer to one of them as green boots. Oh, sure. Yeah, take a left at green boots. That's how I used to identify regulars when I attended bar. Oh, weird hair guys back. Mm. Oh, look, it's Red Jacket. Oh, great. Red Jacket gets kind of handsy after midnight, if you know what I mean. So Jean said in an interview, It's like I fell asleep and then woke up in the hospital. Wow. I didn't see any light or any tunnel or anything like that. It was kind of disappointing. So many people talk about that, but but I got nothing. <laughs> Did I have a question. Um, well, because, okay, so... Yeah. 
I don't know whereabouts this Wally man lived, but did no one drive by his driveway in that seven hour period? I mean, did no one notice that lump? Well, it was on a back gravel road. I guess. So it was a rural location, right. I guess. She uh, has no lingering health issues from the ordeal. It's amazing. It really is. She got married. She had kids. She later got divorced. She currently lives in Cambridge, Minnesota, and she works at Walmart. Um, she doesn't spend much time thinking about that night in 1980, she said. Uh, she just, when she goes out, she now bundles up and doesn't drive on icy back roads at night. Good call, Gene. Good call, indeed. So there you go, the story of Jean uh, Hilliard, or as I like to call her, the miracle on ice. That's horrible. Any hoozle. And now, the Box of Oddities brings you that thing in the middle. We call our stories from many different sources. Today's That Thing in the Middle story comes from Strange History, which is, believe it or not, is by the Bathroom Readers Institute. And you can find it on our Goodreads page. Charles Coughlin, born on Prince Edward Island, Canada, in 1891. He became a successful stage actor and toured the world, but he always considered Prince Edward Island his home. In 1899, during an appearance on Galveston Island, Texas, he fell ill and died, and was buried in a Galveston cemetery. On September 8, 1900, a hurricane struck Galveston, washing away most of the town and swamping all the cemeteries. Seven years later, a fisherman from Prince Edward Island noticed a large box in the water. He towed it to shore, chipped off the barnacles and discovered the coffin of Charles Coughlin, beloved native son. It had floated into the Gulf of Mexico, been caught by the West Indian Current, carried into the Gulf Stream, and deposited on the shore, only a few miles from his birthplace. That don't make no sense. It sounds made up. It's, it's not, though. It's, it's real. Mother Nature can deliver a coffin thousands of miles north. But yet the airline always loses my luggage. Coming to you from the very tip of North America, this is The Box of Oddities. So what do you got for me this I'm episode? I'm very excited about this. What would you say is the thing I care about the most? Animals. Yes, that is correct. Unless there are ducks in your bathroom keeping you from urinating in, indoors. Well, no, I mean, if I had to, I mean, obviously. Yeah, it's something I complain about now, and it's a funny anecdote, but I mean, I, I get it. Mm. Ducks are the priority, <laughs> especially in my house growing up. Okay, so today I'm going to tell you about the Kakapo. The Kakapo. Are you, are you familiar? Is that a monkey? No. Oh. It's a bird. It's a bird. It's the Kakapo, and it's also known as the night parrot 
or the owl parrot. Night parrot sounds like some kind of jailhouse slang. It sure does. Like, like shower hawk. Stay away from those night parrots. You know what I'm saying? Right? <laughs> 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 the kakapo was originally described by English ornithologist George Robert Gray in 1845. Um, the name kakapo is the English translation of kakapo, which is derived from the Maori terms kaka, which means parrot, and po, which means night. Now, I don't think that kakapo is how the Maori said it, uh, but I don't speak Maori. So it has finely blotched yellow and green plumage, uh, very distinct facial discs of sensory vibrissa-like feathers, which I'm not sure that I'm saying that right. Uh, but it basically means that it's feathers around its eyeballs, mm -hmm. which are forward-facing, by the way, rather than on the sides like oh, other parrots. Oh, really? Those feathers are like whiskers, and they direct sound from the front to the ears. Is, is this some sort of a almost like missing link between birds and mammals or something? No. Because what you're describing to me in my head looks like a meerkat. It's not It's not like a meerkat. Think of like an owl face, okay. you know, with, okay. the, with yeah. the eyes forward and then the, 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 the feathers around the sure. eyeballs that, sure. are, that look different. Um, and then he's got the beak. So he kind of looks like, you know, those monkeys with the f, -f on the f. On the face, the f, f the the the, f the fur from the f around their eyes. Yeah, he's gonna go a little f, f right. I, I I wish you all could see the uh, nope the mannerisms oh. and the gestures that are going on right now. Maybe one day we'll have a TV show. I'll post a picture of him. Okay. Um, he's got a large gray beak, very short legs, very large feet, and wings and a tail of a relatively short length. So the combination of traits make it unique among its kind. It is the world's only flightless parrot. It is the world's heaviest parrot. It is one of the world's few truly nocturnal parrots. It's um, only a plant eater. It is uh, the male and female are obviously different looking, um, which there's a technical term for that, but I'm afraid I'll mispronounce that as well. <laughs> um, he has a very low metabolic rate. Um, there's no male parental care in this kind of bird, and it's the only parrot to have a polygenous lick breeding system. What does that mean? It means that a dude parrot mm -hmm. will get with multiple lady parrots, but uh, the lady parrots will only breed with one male. Lady parrots will only breed with one male, but okay, so yeah. You know how it goes. So there's a porn site for that, I think, isn't there? Well, there are no parrots involved in the site I'm thinking of. <gasps> oh, mm. oh, I see what mm. you're, you're talking about. It's kind of like the reverse of your last story where the, that one woman Dolly mm -hmm. was like doing it with everyone. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's, kind of, <laughs> it's just like that. Um, only the, with parrots. Only with parrots. <laughs> yeah. Um, in fact, one of these male parrots only lives in the attic of one of the trees. <laughs> That's not. No. <laughs> no. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. Back to reality. Whoop, there goes rabbit. Okay, 
The kakapo is the heaviest species of parrot in the world, and it's actually because of that weight that he can't fly. Right. Um, and over the years, his being a giant fat bird um, has caused this the the sternum muscles that would normally help the wings do what they need to do mm -hmm. um, to weaken. So even now, if he lost a lot of weight, he couldn't fly. Weight can vary from uh, two to nine pounds at maturity. Males are larger than females. The largest flying parrot is the hyacinth macaw. And um, this tubby here outweighs that bird by a lot. So the kakapo uh, on the upper part of the body, they have yellow moss green feathers, which are uh, barred with black or brown or darkish gray. And that blends very well with the native vegetation, because as you can imagine, they, they hunt uh, for their veg and their nuts and such on the ground, or they climb trees pretty well too, which actually looks a little goofy because they're they're giant fat birds <laughs> and they're just climbing trees everywhere and they're like knocking branches off and it's kind of awkward and, and goobery. But because the feathers don't need the strength and stiffness required to fly, they are exceptionally soft. Um, I want to pet one. A lot. You want to you want to fill our tub with uh, night parrots? I would love to. Thank you very much. Are you willing to pee outside? Yep. All right then. Have at it. I say. Unlike most other bird species, the kakapo is entirely. I always want to put the emphasis on the wrong syllable here. Herbivorous. He just eats fruits and seeds and leaves and stems, and the sex ratio of kakapo offspring is entirely dependent on the diet of the mother which is really interesting. Higher protein diets lend to a higher percentage of males among the offspring, while foraging kakapo tend to have uh, more ladies. Kakapo smell like honey. What? You can, you can find them more so uh, than just looking for the big fat bird knocking limbs off of trees. <laughs> you can smell them. You can seek them out with your, with your, uh, your sniffer. So not only would it be fun to have a tub full of uh, night parrots, but our bathroom would smell like honey? Yes. I mean. Yeah. They developed a very strong leg system. Uh, because of their not flying. And so they have this jog-like gait that is great to watch. Um, oftentimes, they'll flop out their wings, and they use them for balance while they run. And it's wonderful. And they're, I mean, they're making their way through the forest floor. So there's a lot of obstacles, but they do it. And a female has been observed making two return trips each night during nesting of up to a half mile. And the male may walk from its home range to a mating area up to three miles away during the mating season. And that's, that's using their, those little tiny short legs. Yeah. They're waddling around for, I guess, you know, if you're going to get some. You know, that's motivation to make you I suppose. waddle for three miles. I've waddled for less. <laughs> yes, you have. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> By the way, you're an excellent waddler. Not that I've waddled a lot, but I got to say, you're the best waddler that I've ever seen. Anyway, um, fossil records indicate that in pre-Polynesian times, the kakapo was New Zealand's third most common bird and was widespread 
on all three islands. And uh, it was thought that they are the longest living parrot. They believe, according to Audubon, that they can live up to 125 years. Wow, that's incredible. And, uh, I mean, parrots have a very long life expectancy, but 125 years is exceptional. So the kakapo uh, was the third most common bird. Uh, The kakapo has the longest life expectancy. However, um, the kakapo population in New Zealand has declined massively since human settlement of the country. They're, They're pretty much defenseless, you know. They're not getting away real fast. And uh, they were an easy source of food for the first humans. And people brought with them a host of predators, dogs, cats, weasels, possums, and rats. And the ground nesting birds were defenseless. They also, um, you know, their eggs were just right there on the ground. Sure. It's real easy to get to. And they've declined in population so much, in fact, that they're no longer found on the main island at all. Just um, on, in they think, three unsettled islands. So they've actually been working on conservation efforts efforts since 1891 no kidding uh new zealand has taken an intensive relocation and protection program to save the kakapo any kakapo surviving on inhabited islands of new zealand are carefully trapped and relocated to protected islands where all the predators such as cats and rats have been eliminated in fact they there are certain types of um, transportation that they won't even allow to those islands for fear that they might bring rats or cats or what have you um that's dedication for sure no boats for instance right no boats at all can go to those islands as of 2014 there were 123 individuals that's it, it that's not Now, they've been doing some very uh, focused breeding programs, and thanks to the major boost in chick numbers, 33 babies have survived their first few years of life, and that population looks like it's going to rise. Because if you think of the fact that, you know, 123 total, and then 33 babies have made it with this program, Mm. that's a huge, huge increase. In Kakapos. So according to uh, Conservation Minister Maggie Berry um, in an Audubon article that I read, uh, she says the future of New Zealand's own giant flightless parrot is looking much brighter. And there are a couple of websites that you can go to if you are interested in learning more or helping to save the uh, critically endangered still Kakapo. Save the Kakapo. Do you have those websites? Um, no, just Google uh, Save the Kakapo. Oh, okay. Save the Kakapo. So they don't fly no. and they're big and fat, but yep. they do have wings. Yeah. So at one point they did fly. Yeah. So who was the first parrot to decide, you know, I'm just going to stay home and get fat? Ground life is the life for me. Yeah. You're like, hey, Kenny, we're going to go uh, fly out and get some nuts. You want to come along? No, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. And his line led to all the future Kakapos. Yeah. Kakako, Kakapo. 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 It sounds yeah. like a guitar playing. That's Kapo. A, that's a Kapo. That's a Kapo. Yeah. Yeah. So, Kakapo, fattest parrot, only flightless parrot, smells like honey, nocturnal. Just the thing to brighten up your bathroom. I love him. Well, that's amazing. And I had no idea that these things existed, let alone that they were just big, fatty, waddling birds that 
let's and just let me reiterate critically endangered well thanks for bringing that to my attention you're welcome that was interesting save the kakapo curator at the box of oddities.com you can uh, get a hold of us at that website all of our social media we've got uh, facebook and twitter and instagram and now goodreads if you would like to uh, find some of the books that we uh that we cite as sources for our um for our program and research. We are starting to get a few Goodreads friends, and it is good fun. And thank you so much for uh, hitting us up on any of that social media. We really, truly do appreciate it, and we love connecting with you. And we're just starting to feel like this community is yeah. is growing up, and I'm just really enjoying it, yeah. and I just love it. And the, and the idea that this is all just kind of happening on its own, it's 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 really exciting to see. And we're so grateful that, uh, that you let us in. Okay, I love you. Bye. Again, Box of Oddities, two episodes a week. Our next episode will drop on Monday. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly. And so, let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you. And its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those I report to to beseech you for assistance. The Box of Oddities is free. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2018. All rights reserved. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.